how do we talk to the right wing so that they can understand us? Do we talk slower? All right, well, that's one of the things we're gonna discuss here. Jamira Burley's joining us. She's an award-winning activist and international speaker. I've, she's blown up on Instagram. I've seen all the videos, not a big deal, bit of a star, okay? So Jamira, welcome, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me. No problem. So, uh, Jamir, look, there's two camps, kind of, uh, on how to talk to the right wing. Uh, one is just let them have it. Like, like, just for God's sake. I mean, all of your uh, points are ridiculous, and we can easily disprove it by going to history and facts and science, etc. And it seems like that's closer to the approach that you take. And it is very often the approach I take on air, okay? But when I can contain myself, I also do the opposite. Not the opposite, but a different approach, which is to think about their perspective and talk in their language so they can maybe you know, understand what we're saying. So what's your take on that, Jamira? Which camp do you think makes more sense? Yeah, I, so I would actually say that there are three sets of um, people within that camp. One, there are those with very malicious intent, right? Who know exactly what they're doing and they're designing the laws and policies in a way in which to disadvantage other communities. The second group of people, I think, are those who, um, you know, have malicious intent in the sense that they are so unhappy with their own lives that they want everyone else to be just as miserable around them. And they can't fathom that minority communities are succeeding in any type of way. And so of course, it must be because of some sort of privilege that we know does not exist. And the third, I think, is a population of people that have been bamboozled, who have been so overly consumed with false information and false narrative that doesn't enable for them to make a sound decision or understand how their their support of particular candidates or policies actually are harming other communities. And so for me, I target those populations. I target those who you know, lack access to information, who want to have a better sense of what's happening around the world, who want to understand intersectionality. And my goal is to bring real facts to the conversation and also to show examples of just what's wrong with our government and how we've utilized, how we've weaponized our government so often to not only disadvantage marginalized communities, but also to continue to keep poor communities poor. Yeah, so I wrote down team oppression, Team bitter and team bamboozled. Yes. Okay, so those are your three camps. And so, but there's one other really, really important team, and that's team independence. And they're a different category, right? So that's yeah. why I fluctuate back and forth, because I want the independents to know no, these guys are knuckleheads. Like slavery did exist, it was really bad. It did have consequences that flow throughout history all the way up until now, right? Um, and on the other hand, when I'm talking to right wingers and I'm trying to convince Team Bamboozled, I do want to say to them, uh, or I do want I want to use language that that um, that they can relate to better, right? So I noticed in one of your interviews, in one of your videos, for example, uh, you were talking about defund the police, right? So look, one way to look at that is what we did earlier on uh, on on Friday's show on on the Young Turks, where we talked about wait. Fox News is literally, Laura Ingram said it, doing a program to defund the schools. And they're trying to destroy public education, defund the teachers, etc. And nobody ever focuses on that. 
But when we do defund the police, they just go ballistic. And, and it's not just right wing media, it's mainstream media. So, but that's a long wind up to when we say defund the police, I know that every Republican shuts off their mind. And, and by the way, some decent number of independents too. So how do you deal with that? Um, it's so interesting you mentioned my video because I do think that social media and platforms like yours are actually showing people real examples of what happens when we don't have clear checks and balances for the police and why police the institution of policing has never worked and is currently not working to keep our community safe. And so when I'm talking to people about why the importance of defund the police, and I'm actually in the middle camp of, you know, I don't think we should totally get, there are many folks who are like, we should get away with the idea of policing altogether. But I think for many folks is a recognition of the fact that yes, we may need to have some sort of level of accountability and policing within our communities to ensure folks are safe. But the way in which police are currently operating are not keeping us safe. And when we talk about, to your point, talk about other institutions that are supposed to be in, in the public good. So education, housing, food, water, um, are keeping our streets clean. Like we've been defunding those programs for decades. That's why our students are going into decapitated schools that don't have running water, that are falling apart. Many of them look like prisons and holding cells for, for students. And we know that we're, we're around the world, we are doing so poorly in education compared to our counterparts. And so I think it's really helpful when we talk about values. When we talk about, I know you wanna keep your community safe. I know you want clean drinking water for your family. I know you want access to clean healthcare um, or affordable healthcare. You're, you're, the folks on the opposition want those same thing too. And what we need to recognize is that the one, the folks that you're advocating for, the legislators and the policies are actually not working in your best interest. And they're writing legislations to strip you of the very values that you hold so true that you're trying to ensure is have access to your families. And so for me, I like to talk about values and show them that our values are not oftentimes different. They just show up different in who represents us. And we oftentimes don't recognize that who we've assigned as our leaders are actually working counterintuitive to the things that we want for our communities. And I think that helps to bring folks into the conversation when we, they recognize that yes, all of us wanna keep our communities safe. Yes, all of us want clean water for our families. Yes, all of us want safe spaces for our children to grow. Um, and unfortunately, our politicians in many cases on the both the right and the left are not doing what they're supposed to do to create that world that we deserve. Yeah. So. Look, I think it's simple. I think, of course, we need policing, but the question is how? Just because we need policing doesn't mean that you need to only stop black and brown people. Like, why? Why is that a rule, <laughs> right? Um, and yeah. <laughs> and you're supposed to be trying to find the criminals, not just randomly do stop and frisk on black and brown people. And like in New York, 94% of the time it was for. Blacks and Latinos that they did stop and frisk. So there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. All right, but speaking of right and wrong, let's go to Democrats now. Um, so I don't know what your opinion is. My opinion is they suck uh, and they never ever do anything for us. Uh, I vote for Democrats so that fascists don't win uh, in general elections. But in primaries, I try to vote against all Democratic incumbents, not all, but almost all. Um, so are you satisfied with the direction of the Democratic Party? 
You know, I won't lie, I've worked for a number of Democratic candidates. I've advocated for many of the Democratic candidates. Um, and I've been disappointed with many of those Democratic candidates. You know, I oftentimes think the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats is unfortunately marketing. We're not able to tell good stories that enables for us to advocate for the for the for the laws and policies that our constituencies want. Right. We oftentimes people said that defund the police was not a good policy to run on. Well, if not if, if the vast majority of the Americans are saying something is is like fundamentally wrong with how our police officers are showing up in our communities and abusing their power. I don't understand how that's not something to run on. They've allowed themselves to be sucked into this this marketing scheme, which and which shows up in the policies that they advocate for. That oftentimes is the middle ground. And I think we're in a really interesting moment within our country's history for us to have bold ideas and bold solutions to actually be able to transform our communities for the better. You know, Joe Biden, whether or not he decides to run again, he could have been seen as the best president that we've ever had. He could have done some very bold initiatives that I think would have enabled and inspired so many young people who feel like the world is raining down on them to feel like they actually have a future in this country. And so I'm hopeful that some of that will change, but I've been disappointed in many cases so far. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know anything that Democrats have done in my lifetime. So you got Biden, but Obama had a supermajority. I know it was for a small period of time, but we didn't get a row codified. We didn't increase minimum wage, we didn't do anything about police brutality at all, not one thing. And the only thing we passed was a healthcare bill honestly written by the Heritage Foundation. That was a right wing healthcare program that was originally called Romney Care and then then Obamacare after that. So Jamira, how in the world are we going to motivate young people who have access to the internet and can see facts? To vote for Democrats if the Democrats never, ever do anything for us. We have to get bold and we have to not care whether or not we're reelected, right? Um, I mean, and that's and that's saying that in the grand scheme of things, but I think too often our politicians are thinking about their next election versus actually creating policy that people care about. That being said, I think there's two populations of young people. One, young people who understand the intersectionality and they know that we need to show up on election day regardless of whether or not we support the candidate 100%. But I also think there's a group of young people that are disillusioned with the system. And until we actually show them that their vote is gonna matter, meaning that the policies, the rights that they they want in their lives are actually gonna be protected by our government. We're gonna continue to see an uphill battle and asking them to and sending fundraising emails to them right after a mass shooting is not working. Sending fundraisers um, emails to them right after the overturning of Roe v. Wade is not enough. And so I think it requires the Democrats to actually listen to people, hear what we are saying and write policies based on the needs and desires that their um, constituents are saying is at the forefront of their mind. So Jamiro, last question is an unfair one. You don't represent all black folks, of course. No. (laughs) Okay, and I don't represent all Turkish American folks. Dr. Oz and I have some disagreements. So having said that you are an activist and African Americans have been the most reliably, not just Democratic voters, but unfortunately, establishment Democratic voters. They and. It has killed progressives in elections. Um, are you seeing any movement of African American um, activists, which might then affect African American voters, going, "Oh yeah, 
it turns out there's a wing of the Democratic Party, the majority of the Democratic Party that isn't ever, ever going to do anything and progressives actually might. So, or is that not really taking hold yet? Yeah, I think this is such a deep question because to your point, there is such a division within the, within the black voting population. One, you have the older folks who very much is tied to the Democratic Party and, and they've been comfortable with incremental changes. And then you have younger black minorities who are want us to do bold and innovative solutions. And I do think that that's an educational piece that we're trying to move closer to. But I do think that the deeper conversation has to be talked about how oftentimes black people don't have the luxury of sitting a conversation out, don't have the luxury of going against what we know to be a two party system because we know that we, we're gonna lose so much if to your point in the very beginning if a fascism um, elected official gets into office. And I think that scares so many people from being able to be as bold and progressive as they would like to be. Well, you see that progressives have a marketing problem too. Cuz progressives would, yeah, do, yeah. would do much better in general elections against Republicans. But we never get there because Voters have heard from the MSNBC and CNN that progressives can't win elections based on absolutely nothing. I don't believe that. Yeah, it's no data at all. In fact, almost all the polling shows that progressives do better in general elections, but we have to deal with mainstream media lying about us 24-7. All right, Jameer Burley, everybody check her out on Instagram, Twitter, and everywhere else. Amazing, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Are Democratic senators unintelligent or corrupt? We'll tackle that question in a minute. First, Rachel Cohen's joining us, a senior policy reporter at Vox.com. Rachel, I am going to ask you that question in a little bit, but I'm gonna give context of your article first. But even before we get to that, there's been new developments since you wrote about the Democratic plans on abortion and fighting back. Uh, if you can call it that, and no, you cannot call it that. Um, uh, so uh, this on uh, Friday morning, uh, President Biden had a press conference and released an executive order. I uh, read that executive order several times and still couldn't figure out uh, what was in it. Uh, it appears to be the world's largest nothing burger. Uh, did I miss anything? Uh, I would say it. It's the kind of thing that he should have done on day one is sort of how people feel like it is good that he is kind of calling for this, what they call whole of government response or sort of directing each agency to do stuff. And I think people have kind of been like, all right, this is better than it was two weeks ago, but it's still pretty vague on multiple parts of the order. Um, it's it, I like it, I would say it's it's progress, but it's still like the bar is 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 pretty low right now. But he's kind of like speaking. I think the speech he gave was with the tone and sort of emphasis that he should have given on June twenty fourth. Yeah, he had to figure out how to pretend to care, uh, and then the executive <laughs> order uh, is a lot of commissions. And potential actions by agencies later, and maybe they'll figure out what to do. Maybe they won't. So, which leads us to your story. So, first of all, let's acknowledge Senate Democrats had six weeks to prepare for this before 
the decision came out because of the leak, obviously, and then they've had two weeks since then. So I know in Washington, people think that Democrats are not incompetent, which I find to be stunning. But can people at least admit, even in Washington, that that was unbelievable incompetence to not have a plan ready when the decision came down? Yeah, I mean, I think when I started doing the reporting and I was trying to understand why there is not a was not really a plan ready to go. First, people said, "Well, you know, they're on recess," like which, but recess was expected, and and we knew this was coming at the end of June. Um, and the other sort of response is like, "Well, they're sort of wanting to see how it's picked, how it's received in the media. They kind of waiting to see what happened. They're kind of waiting to see what happened to shape." Response around that, um, you know, I I think that I think people are in their are still in in Washington are still in their sort of baffled stage. Like they sort of couldn't believe that there wasn't something else coming. Like, and now I think it is dawning. And I tried to make clear in my story that there there really was no clear strategy prepared for this moment. Despite and you said six weeks. I mean, it's minimum six weeks. But you we. We've been talking. Certainly, legal experts have thought this was coming for for several years. So, yeah, I mean, did they were they so stupid that they didn't think that the conservative justices would rule against them? That they were honest during their Supreme. I mean, but Biden really might be that unintelligent because he thinks the fever is going to break any second. And how it's I mean, listen to the answer, right? And and Rachel's just relaying what's happening in Washington and what Democrats are saying. Recess. That's saying. Oh, you lost women's rights, but I was on vacation. Oh, what a great excuse. And we're gonna wait to see how it's received in the media. Profiles and courage. All right, so now in your piece, you talk about this Tim Kaine bill, where Tim Kaine is trying to do a compromise with Republicans to get 60 votes. Are they mental? Like, that's a real question. Are they mental? Do they do Democratic senators actually believe that they can get something that protects abortion that 10 Republicans would agree to in the Senate? How can anyone uh, well, be that it, unintelligent? I think um, I think that he is he has said that it would still be significant if they could at least get a majority of the senators, so over 50, because that's something the Democrats haven't been able to get on their bill. So I think that's kind of the the sort of like lower bar of not passing anything that they're trying to reach. And he's saying he hopes, like he he's like I think there'd be value in that because the courts are still looking at this question. Um, I guess I guess sort of one of the big things that emerged in the reporting is like we had the infrastructure bill where they did reach an agreement. They had the gun bill where they did reach an agreement, and a lot of people thought that wasn't going to happen. And so there is this question like, is there something to be reached on abortion? And even if there, even if you can't, should you try? And the vast majority of the Democratic caucus and the reproductive rights groups are saying, no, it's not possible. Don't try. It's a waste of time. Um, we should just be focusing on sort of other, other, put our energies elsewhere. But there are some people who are saying like, you know, Democrats may be wiped out in November. The idea of even getting over 50 could be like a could be a far cry by December. We don't know. So is it should you try? Should we try even if we can't get it? Um, 
And I would say most Democrats right now are saying no, but there is a small minority that's saying like we should try. Yeah, you're, you're definitely answering the question. Rachel's a reporter, she's just giving facts as to what's happening in Washington. So um, yeah, the, the my interpretation of your answer is yeah, Tim Kaine is the most clueless person in America, unless he's corrupt. Because the gun bill is a good example of that, Rachel, because what do they do? They pass a gun bill that had nothing in it. And what was it? It was a CYA operation, it covered the ass of the Republicans. It helped the Republicans pretend that they did something about the massacres when they didn't do a goddamn thing. And most of them I, voted against it. I don't agree, but and I, I I mean I don't know like yeah. I mean just for the record, I don't I don't think that uh, what was in the I gun bill? But it's your show, so you can obviously you No know, no, that. I know, I know, Rachel, you have to pretend that this like makes sense. But like <laughs> so what was in the gun bill? What was that what, what, what give me one democratic priority that was in the gun bill? No, I guess I mean my I think on the gun bill that I think that it helps to I think it helps on the state and local level to like send a message that it kind of helps depolarize it a little bit which makes it easier to act that like I that I think I don't think that passing this bill which did close the boyfriend loophole which I think is really important like you know whatever we don't have to get into the the merits of it's obviously weak but I think there's I think there's positive benefits that come that like happen on the state and local level when they manage to get an agreement in Washington. But that's yeah, no, no, that's that is the answer. So see that that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm not trying to get at Rachel's opinions. I'm trying to get at what do people in Washington think based on a reporting. And so you mentioned there, for example, with with gun legislation, there's this idea that if they pass something that it has positive reverberating consequences. At the states, etc. So, for example, when Tim Kaine says, "Hey, maybe we can get 53 votes on an abortion right. bill," that that'll have positive consequences. So, have has anybody ever asked them what those are? Do they think that Republicans at the state level will then go, "Oh, they got 53 votes. Oh, okay, you know what? We're going to make abortion legal in Mississippi." I, I didn't know that. Okay, like no, and I'm no, and I know I'm being sarcastic, but. I'm, but I'm being literal, like. Yeah, I I think that they're not drawing the same argument for the gun bill to the abortion stuff. The positive reverb effects of that, I think he was talking about for courts that are still looking at the issues. Like I don't when they understand that either. Yeah, like so, help me understand because why the bill that doesn't pass is, is saying in the legislative history and and what the debates are like. And so, um, anyway, it could, I mean. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I personally think that, I mean, what do you think they should do nothing? Like, that, like that's, no, that's no, really Rachel the question everyone's talking about right now. Oh, Rachel, it's so easy what they could do. I mean, that's what drives me crazy, that they always pretend there's nothing they could do. So Manchin and Cinema are gone, they're already Republicans. They There's literally no benefit to them staying Democrats. So what Biden and everybody else should do is they should put pressure and say, hey, you know who's blocking voting rights and women's rights, let alone build back better in our entire agenda? It's Manchin and Cinema. that's factual. And then they should put enormous pressure on them. And everybody goes, oh, well, then they'll turn Republican. Too late, they already are, right? Yeah. So then but what that would create, Rachel, is that would actually create reverberating consequences, right? Where the voters go, well, look, they didn't win, but man, they Biden shredded Manchin. 
And they kicked Cinema out of the party and she's gonna lose her primary. So I get it, they're trying to get voting rights. They're trying to codify Roe. And you know what, now that I see they're actually fighting for it, if I can get them two more senators, maybe we can do this thing. But when they say, "Oh no, Mansion and Cinema, we don't want to offend them, so we're just going to lay down in front of the tracks and never criticize them," everybody gets a message: No, you're not going to fight them. You view Democratic colleagues as more important than your voters. So that would be a thing to do, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't like. I think that we. I think Biden did criticize Manchin with the CTC stuff in the in December, and it didn't go well. We ended up not extending it. I think, but I, I like that is that is a theory of like maybe voters will 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 be more energized if Biden was more aggressive about the obstructionist nature of of them on this. Um, I I don't I think that a lot of the pro-choice coalition is is not in the in the Percentage of people that are where I where I personally politically fall. Like you know, I think uh, I think I think a lot of pro-choice voters are probably a little more sympathetic to those moderate Democrats than a lot of. I don't think so at other, all. Like, than a lot. Of, so like that, I think that's the, the I think the, I think the pro-choice voters despise Manchin and Cinema now. And if you actually told them how much they're screwing them, so for example, I mean, a, Rachel, a lot of pro-choice voters are are not pro-abortion. That's the, like we just, like that's just part of the like the coalition. It's like people who are pro-choice, people who are anti-government being involved, and people you know that those are combined. So it's it's a little I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that the the people who run the organizations in Washington and Democratic leadership are one billion percent out of touch. Uh, I think if you told pro, ask pro-choice voters, do you want to fight Manchin because he's blocking your ability to have reproductive rights, or do you want to kiss his ass like Biden and the other groups are? There's going to be a very very clear answer to that, and it isn't going to be kiss their ass. Um, so uh, I think Washington is insane, completely disconnected from the American people, has no idea what's happening. And by, and you know how I know I'm right, Rachel? Uh, the poll numbers for Biden are a disaster. And the idiot thinks it's because he did too much and that he was too progressive. I mean, does, does anyone in Washington realize in Democratic leadership, hey schmucks, Everyone thinks you did too little. So that's my last question. Do they have they even considered that possibility? Or are they like, oh, we, we were too progressive? We're definitely too progressive. Because that's what I see in all the articles. Uh, I I don't think that they are interpreting the terrible, and I agree, terrible poll numbers as a reflection of like overreaching. On progressive legislation, I think they are sort of. I think they are sort of playing in their mind. It's like, oh, it's just inflation. Um, you know, the just the Ukraine sort of stuff. I think I, I don't think they. I don't think the Biden administration right now is taking much responsibility for their poll numbers. Um, and yeah. 
but I, I don't think it's because I don't think they're ta- I don't think they're saying our poll numbers are because we messed up. I just think they're not taking responsibility in any way, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right, everybody, I learned from Rachel's piece at Vox.com. I think you can too. Uh, senior policy reporter at Vox, uh, Rachel Cohen, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much.